Hello, Internet. This is Phil Dory of Eurovision Wars, the podcast that explores the geopolitics of our favourite song contest and is now joining the ESC Insight Extended Universe. This episode of Season 1 was originally broadcast on Spotify in 2022. Go to Spotify if you want to check out Season 2 a little early. Let's find out why Eurovision is war by other means. Hello Europe, my name is Phil Dore and welcome to Eurovision Wars, a new podcast about the geopolitics of the world's biggest singing contest. In future episodes, we'll be talking about Israel and Palestine, Armenia versus Azerbaijan, but inevitably we're going to be starting with Russia and Ukraine. People listening to this may know that this year Ukraine won Eurovision, riding a tide of public sympathy from the Russian invasion, but there's a long story of Russian and Ukrainian rivalry at the contest. And to tell that story, we're going to have to go all the way back to 2014. And joining me today are two guests. The first, dialing in from Liverpool, is Dr. Jamie Halliwell. Hello, UK. Hi, Phil. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you're welcome. And I believe you're actually a doctor of Eurovision. Yes, I am. Yes, I graduated my PhD last year. Last, mm-hmm. yeah, last, yeah, well, I had my graduation ceremony this year. And I finished the PhD last year. I've just with COVID, I've just lost concept of time altogether yeah. and time scales. Oh yeah, COVID did do weird things to our perception of time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yep, definitely. Yeah, I think the past two years have been a long century. <laughs> yeah, it feels like it. <laughs> yeah. And also joining me from Copenhagen is Julius Hesseris. Hello, Denmark. Hello, hello. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. having me. I understand that while you're not a doctor of Eurovision, or at least not yet anyway, I do believe you have a master's in the topic. Yes, uh, I wrote my uh, master's thesis on the use of nationality as an aesthetic tool in the Eurovision, specifically in the 2010s, and I did focus quite a lot on Ukraine and Russia. Um, okay. So quite pleased to be here today. Um, it was immediately discovering that the overlap of Eurovision and academia may be bigger than people think it is. Oh, yes, big Definitely. news of us. Definitely a big community of us. And as we were saying before, that we were supposed to be going to Rotterdam in 2020 for an academic conference in Rotterdam. And obviously with COVID, it all just got cancelled, sadly. And I had everything booked as well. <laughs> trying to get money back and everything. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, hopefully there might be another one in the next yeah. few years or so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just to declare uh, a bit of a interest... I- I was actually one of your respondents in your PhD thesis. Yes, so. yes, Phil was. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't know how many years ago now. I think it was, yeah. was it 2017, something like that. Something like that. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Very insightful. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, think you wanted some straight male Eurovision fans to interview. Yes. And yes. you interviewed 14 of them. So you've interviewed all 14 of us. Uh, yes, I have. <laughs> yes. And uh, I, I wrote a paper on the topic as well. Uh, so we sort of spoke to some straight and bisexual men about their experiences Eurovision. I wrote a paper on and I think it was published a year or two ago, I think. So yeah, it was really, really interesting and one of the big one of the big chapters of my thesis as well, my PhD okay. thesis. Okay. So did you both enjoy the contest this year? Yeah, very much so. Um I'm I'm all for getting together with a bunch of people and just having them have to listen to me. <laughs> talk about different facts and stuff about Eurovision and it, yeah it's good fun they're, they're, they're quite nice about it <laughs> that sounds like my house <laughs> <laughs> probably Jamie's house as well 
Yeah, well, I uh, I wasn't in the UK for Eurovision this year. I went to the Netherlands and spent the, the Eurovision week uh, with my two friends just outside Utrecht. So uh, okay. we were watching through the TV. I, I don't know if it was an omen that I was outside the UK when the UK was winning the jury vote. I don't know if... <laughs> Mm. So, uh, and I obviously get very excited during that, that sequence and my friends like tell me to calm down, I suppose. But <laughs> Yeah, I'm actually quite glad of how well the UK did because I was expecting when I did this podcast that I was going to have to deal with lots of people telling me, oh, so you're going to do an episode on how the reason the UK loses every year is because they all hate us because of Brexit. <laughs> yeah, turns out we were just sending lame songs the whole time. <laughs> Okay, so let's start our story. And like I said, we have to start the story of the Russia-Ukraine rivalry at Eurovision way, way back in 2014. And in that year, Ukraine's pro-Russian president, Viktor Yanukovych, had been ousted from power by the Euromaidan revolution after he cancelled a trade agreement with the EU in favour of closer links with Russia. He was kicked out and replaced by the much more pro-EU Petro Poroshenko. And in the aftermath of that revolution, Russia annexed Crimea and also kicked off a long-running civil war in the east of the country with Russian-backed separatists fighting the Ukrainian military in a conflict that continued basically right up to the invasion of this year. I'm not going to go into depth about the Euromaidan, but I would recommend that anyone who is interested in it might want to watch the Netflix movie Winter on Fire. Yes, welcome to Eurovision Wars, the podcast that sets you homework. (laughs) (laughs) And and also, as we talk about Eurovision, it does have Ruslana in it, uh, Ukraine's Eurovision winner of 2004. So I recommend that if you want to hear more. Let's look at while all this was going on in the Euromaidan and the annexation of Crimea and the war in Donbass. 2014, Jamie, would it be fair to say that of the Russia and Ukraine songs of that year, they were both what one would describe as fairly, what one would imagine as kind of bog-standard Eurovision entries. Yeah, I mean, with Ukraine, because I think that, that was TikTok with Maria Yaramchuk in 2014. Uh, and I, I obviously, I think, I, I think because of the love, love, peace, peace interval as well in 2016, I always know the hamster wheel that was on stage during the performance has been quite an iconic emblem of that song. Well, um, it made its way into the Netflix movie about Eurovision with Will yeah, Ferrell. Yeah, Fire Saga. Yeah. Iceland's finest. I'll have to watch that again. Yeah. I've only seen it once, but I, it was a while ago, so I need to refresh my memory on it. Will Ferrell, he does get some things wrong about the contest, because one thing, he, the UK seems to be in the semi-finals, <laughs> and it also stars two Icelandic singers called Lars and Sigrid, neither of which are actually Icelandic names, but you do see certain references to real-life events that do come out in the Eurovision movie. And one of them was the hamster wheel. <laughs> yeah. And... Yulia, the Russian song, which was Shine by the Tolmachevi sisters, who were identical to it, also fairly bog-standard Eurovision stuff. I would say so. Uh, it's got a bit of the attention grab that you're looking for in a Eurovision song with the, the twin sisters. Always good to have something that makes you stand out from the huge field of, of contestants. So yeah, they're very standard, but with a bit of attention grab, just uh, the recipe you need to follow. So, yeah, it's a fairly standard Eurovision song, isn't it? It's got a silly visual gimmick. It's kind of lightweight pop. And it's probably only really notable for what came next. 
for Ukraine at Eurovision, which we will get to later. But before we do that, during 2014, the Russian act, the Tolmachevi sisters, they were getting a certain reaction from the crowd, weren't they? Uh, perhaps, Jamie, would you like to say what that reaction was? Yeah, I think if, if memory serves, I think 2014 might have been the first time that Russia was booed, I think. After, not the last. <laughs> not the yes. And I distinctively remember the Tom Chevy's hair being entwined into each other on a seesaw. Yeah. Um, and I think even remember during the voting sequence as well, I think when they got 12 points from certain countries that the audience would, would boo. And then I think that then prompted in 2015, which we're probably coming to, Shortly, the whole anti-booing technology that the Austrian organisers put in. Anti-booing technology, that's the thing. <laughs> Just combat that, which I thought uh, is quite yeah. interesting. Well, the best anti-booing technology would be not invading Crimea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, although it wasn't just the fact that Russia had invaded Crimea, it was also a reaction to the very homophobic legislation that was going through Russia's parliament at that time. There was an anti-gay propaganda law. And as you say, it was the first time that they got booed, but not the last. As we moved to 2015, Ukraine weren't there because, well, their country was in chaos. They just didn't have the capacity to organise a Eurovision Act. They have bigger things on their mind. But Russia were there. And their choice of song which is A Million Voices by Polina Gagarina. It was, shall we say, unfortunate. It's a peace song. It's a peace song. There's another country, not in Eurovision, because they invaded them, and they've sent a peace song. Yeah. Not exactly a great look, is it? Yeah, I think I vaguely remember the video, the music video to that as well, and it was just this whole white blanket in the background with all these children in the front and I think there was a lot was there was some old people as well there and I don't think mm. I think everybody was white I think if I remember um yeah everyone in the video was white yeah <laughs> yeah it's a we yeah. are all one world song where everyone is white. <laughs> <laughs> yeah As, yeah I also yeah when we talk about the booing and obviously the anti-booing technology and everything and I always remember that I think during the performance there was I think it was two people holding pride flags as the camera was kind of like panning onto the stage and I, I suppose all that booing is obviously a culmination of this introduction of this, this uh, anti-LGBT law uh, that Russia had introduced, the invasion of Crimea and also the Donbass and all this kind of thing. So there was, there was a lot going on, uh, a lot of audience mm -hmm. reaction. And I also remember, because I was in the arena for the final, but mm -hmm. I was in the seats next to the stage, but I couldn't see the stage. So I was almost at Eurovision and they gave us T-shirts with almost Eurovision on. <laughs> But we could see everyone coming off stage and they'd be waving to them as they're coming off. Anyway, um, and I, I didn't know who was given the votes at the end, but I always remember people cheering when Sweden were being given 12 points and Russia was going down to second place. Do you know if that was during when Nigella uh, Lawson gave the votes up for the UK? I'm not sure. But yeah, I remember all this, all this cheering for Sweden when uh, Russia were being toppled from first place. Yulia, if I turn to you, and I just want to play a little bit of devil's advocate here now. Both the Tolmachevi sisters in 2014 and Plina Gagarina in 2015, you know, they're not politicians and they're not the enactors of these laws. They didn't invade Crimea themselves. Was it a little unfair perhaps to boo them because of the geopolitics? What I will say is 
they are representing Russia. And when it comes mm-hmm. to nationality, there will always be an us versus them sort of mentality mm-hmm. about it. Was it fair that these individuals were booed? Perhaps not. Uh, we'll probably get a little bit further into Polina uh, later on. <laughs> oh, yes, but, we will. <laughs> yeah. But it is very natural when it comes to nationalism and, and these countries going against each other. There will always be this, this us versus them attitude. There's also this thing about this is something that I wrote about in my, my master's thesis is that we can use nationality or leave it out in some instances to create a favorable image of ourselves as a nation. This particular Polina performance with A Million Voices doesn't really have a lot of, compared to some of the other songs I wrote about, uh, a lot of nationality in its performance. There's not a lot of visual representation of nationalism. And they are kind of trying to create this image of themselves, which has no correspondence with like everyday life they're trying to create this positive image and, and they're trying to sell this idea of peace when we know as onlookers, as an audience, this doesn't correspond with what's happening in real life. So there's a, there's a disruption in these two images that what we know from the outside and what is being presented on stage, it, it doesn't come across as authentic. And therefore, I think that it's probably quite natural that that was the reaction that she was getting. Is there anything you wanted to add on that, Jamie? Not really, but I was I was thinking because we were thinking about representations of Russia and Ukraine, Russia and Eurovision, and I was just like in my dissertation, I analysed mm. Russia's two thousand entry going way back, a solo by Elsu, and I sort of did a bit of discourse analysis on it, and the lyrics are quite interesting, and I could sort of like read you a verse from it yeah. if you'd like Go me ahead. to. Yes. So we have, my friends try to tell me I don't want to listen because I'm the kind of person got to find out on my own. I gave you my heart, you tore it apart. Now I'm coming back strong. I knew it was wrong. So I sort of like analyze this as a way of like Russia maybe sort of isolating itself from the rest of Europe because of this mm. whole metaphor of this wall. But also what I found quite interesting about this was that it was written by two American lyricists. So you've also obviously got these kind of like, there's some like Russian stereotypes in there about cold weather and that kind of thing in this song. But also these American lyricists are talking about the sort of self-contained Russia that kind of wants to be like isolated and everything. And this talk of walls, which is obviously talked about a lot, especially under, under the Trump administration more recently. But I thought what was also quite interesting during that is that there was a picture postcard before that, that the Swedish producers incorporating, that was a picture postcard of a performance of Chekhov's Three Sisters, which was performed in a Stockholm theatre. So I thought that was quite interesting that was sort of signalling this whole like Russian cultural globalisation of of theatre and and, and that kind of thing, and sort of its integration into like a sort of signalling Europeanness. So I just thought I'd just put that in there because I think some of those lyrics are kind of pertinent to what's happening at the moment. So just going back to the question of whether or not it was fair to boo the Tolmachevy sisters and Kalina Gagarina. Well, the Tolmachevy sisters, I mean, to the best of my knowledge, they've never expressed any particular political opinions. Kalina Gagarina, on the other hand, oh, that's a whole other kettle. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, so where do we start? Well, three years after she sang her peace song at Eurovision in 2018, there was an election 
a fairly rigged election in Russia, uh, where it's obvious that Putin was going to win. And as part of his election campaign, there was a campaign song involving a supergroup. And this supergroup was called Putin Team. And Polina Gagarina, she was in it. Also in it was Dima Bilan, who was the winner of Eurovision 2008, I want to say, for Russia. And various other Russian celebrities singing a song called Putovodnaya Zvesta, which apparently translates from Russian as Guiding Star. And Putovodnaya, it's kind of a play on words, Putovodnaya, Putin. So it's like Putin is a guiding star. It's Um, not very subtle at all, is it? (laughs) It's not remotely subtle. The thing is that it it would probably perform quite well in Eurovision. (laughs) I mean... It's got a beat! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's a rap rap segment. What? (laughs) What? Yeah. Yeah. I did ask a Russian contact about this. So what my Russian contact said was that these are kind of like, they, they weren't the sort of artists that young people in Russia would listen to. It's more middle-aged housewife type acts. <laughs> so I guess you have to imagine that, yeah, so like, maybe like James Blunt or something like that. So imagine a dozen James Blunts got together to do an election anthem for Nigel Farage. <laughs> That's where we're at. <laughs> Oh. I'm thinking more like a hundred Susan Boyles. Ooh. <laughs> so yeah, Susan Boyle, J- James Blunt, that was the sort of level of acts they were at. And, you know, it's just, these were not acts that would be considered down with the kids. So looking back on it, given it's involved in that, was the booing unfair? <laughs> were people too hard on her? You look like you're trying to say no, David. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I mean, I think I, I know because, like, it's because it, you think I don't know. I don't know. I think it's probably it's 2015, isn't it? And mm. I mean, you know, now we're looking back on it. It's like because I think it was so ambiguous over like what people were booing for. Was it was it because of the anti-LGBT thing? Was it because of the war in Donbass and, and Crimea? But yeah, I mean, looking back, I. Oof, probably say yes at this point <laughs> so yeah you know, although we but... we will be coming back to Polina Gagarin later in the series as to what she got up to more recently I just I would just like to say that I think she knew exactly what she was doing she, she will have had to have seen it from our side as well this was mm. the year after the annexation of Crimea and on top of the the history that Russia has, and and especially in those years, had with LGBTQ people, she had to know what she was doing, choosing to sing that song, representing Russia exactly that year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sorry. <laughs> yeah. uh, and like I said, we will be coming back to Polina Gagarina in subsequent episodes. And let's put it this way, she doesn't have a redemption arc. No. <laughs> no, okay. No. But we'll come back to that. Now, now, despite all the booing, they did come second, which is something to think about whenever people say that everyone hates the UK at Eurovision. <laughs> no, they don't. We just, we've just been sending rubbish all these years, and we proved that this year. So let's move to 2016. So, Jamie, as you know, that main standing area in front of the arena and indeed most of the arena itself it's a very very lgbt crowd uh, you know particularly gay men and clearly a lot of people in the crowd had been very and quite rightly incensed at 
Russia's anti-LGBT legislation. So, anti-booing of technology aside, what could Russia have possibly done in 2016 in order to send someone who will be at no risk whatsoever of getting booed by the crowd? Well, we'll send Sergei Lazarev. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Sergei! So, now, Sergei Lazarev, he is a big star in Russia. I think he was a pretty big star even before mm. he did Eurovision. He's not an openly gay man, but not exactly in the closet either, would that be fair to say? And there's been a lot of speculation with amongst the gay fans of the fandom, I think, uh, about his sexuality. And I think because of that as well, I kind of, you know, I think this is one reason why Russia obviously sent him to Eurovision, was to sort of like send this artist that is potentially gay and would appeal to the gay fans, I think. And I think that was probably their motivations to send him as well and I, I i mean i think i was in the re- when i was in the re- in 2016 i don't think i heard any booing for him whatsoever so it was just mm. it was quite interesting how we've shifted now from sort of having to install on boom technology and we've had all this booing and now we send sergey lazarev like oh everything seems okay everything's fine i just find that really very interesting and i'm a straight cisgender middle-class middle-aged white male God, I'm really basic. (laughs) Um, But even I could spot the LGBT signalling in his performance. I mean, it was whether or not he is or is not gay. I mean, it's, you know, the the signalling was definitely there and probably didn't hurt that, well, he's quite handsome. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If you find a handsome Phil, then that's fine by us. But... um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but uh, but yeah I think I think yeah I think there was a you know and they obviously sent him again in 2018 as well and I kind of wonder if that was a similar a similar reasoning um, yeah. as well yeah um, Yulia uh, not only had, had Russia found its own anti-booing technology in the, in the human form of Sergei Lazarev he had quite an expensive looking video and a very elaborate stage show involving him interacting with lots of hologram figures. Russia was going for a win that year, wasn't they? I think so. Uh, it was a very impressive uh, stage show and they mm. they understood that Eurovision is made for TV and it has to mm. look good on TV. How it looked standing there <laughs> live, I can't say, but they definitely understood the assignment, as the kids say. <laughs> yeah. And it what I say, they did do a a very elaborate stage show, and it and it was the betting favourite to win. You know, pretty much for most of the con- mm. run up to the contest. So they were not only hoping to win; they were probably also expecting to win. Julia, do you like it? I mean, it's on my uh, get hyped playlist for Eurovision. Mm. I do, I do put it on uh, quite often. What I find interesting about Eurovision is the acts that sort of challenge the whole uh, Eurovision as a as a genre as an in a an event that's been going on for 60 some years. I quite like the the songs that stand out a little bit more, but I, I do understand the appeal. I think it's a, mm. it's a good Eurovision song. New Jamie, is it, is it yeah. on your playlist? No, I think it has been in the past. I haven't listened to it for a while, but I must, I think with 2016, I think this was also the first year where Swedish organisers had introduced hologram technology that delegate, delegations could use on stage and more sort of more enhanced things they could do on the screen. So I think during his performance, we see him sort of tilting 
like it seems like he's tilting upside down on the screen. And, you know, I think we have a lot more technological ability that Sweden put into their 2016 production, which I don't think we've seen much of recently, maybe a bit in 2019, possibly. But yeah, I mean, it's a sort of strong sort of like dance poppy sort of Euro. Do we say Euro dance? I don't know. Track. So I don't know how much, it, how many rubles it cost. Uh, to <laughs> lot, <laughs> Probably quite a few thousands or maybe a million, possibly more. And they would definitely want to win that year. But yeah, it, I mean, it, you know, it's that sort of get that high energy kind of like get ready to go to the club kind of track. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. which I think is which is a lot especially within the fandom and a lot of you know a lot of people are enjoying Swedish Melody Festival and kind of like banging songs uh, pop bangers I think it kind of appealed to a lot of people who were also interested in that kind of genre yeah it's not one of my favourites I mean I just kind of came away feeling like you know, they got a really charismatic star a very expensive video, very elaborate stage show, and I kind of forgot to bring a song. It's it's memorable because of the staging and the technology, yeah. definitely. I, I don't think it's been done better than that since then. I think some people have tried. I mean, absolutely no disrespect. I can't remember where this woman was from, but there was a woman in a purple cat suit i think it was last year possibly 2019 she kind of tried to do some of the same things i think it greece 2021 yes exactly yes. Yeah, yeah that's yes. the one she kind of tried to do the, the yeah. same thing and it just came across looking a little bit on the cheaper side just because it, it couldn't really measure up to what russia were doing back then i i remember showing this to my fiance who has absolutely no interest in Eurovision at all and this was one of the things that he started telling people about at our Eurovision viewing party in 2021 where he was like well Russia did it a couple of years ago and it just doesn't really add up yeah. it's not the same it's always memorable yeah I remember 2016 was kind of a weird year because as you said Jamie they, that was the first year they had the holograms and countries were clearly riding on the back of Sweden's win in 2015 when Monzel Malo was interacting with a green screen projection. And I didn't know a lot of the songs that went hog wild on the holograms are also kind mm. of the ones that kind of died on their asses. Yeah. It's a little bit like when Eurovision discovered dubstep and then all of a sudden it was everywhere. Yeah. Mm. So I, I remember the, the Belarus singer that year was a hologram of him naked howling oh, at a live yes. wolf. Oh, right, yes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'd blocked that out. <laughs> I know, same. Has uh, it been haunting your nightmares? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. But now I'm seeing Monselmolo with that wolf when he was naked, because he sort of imitated that, didn't he? When he was presenting, he was, like, naked. He brought him out naked with this, like, toy wolf that he put in front of his crotch. Um <laughs> If, I don't know if you remember that bit. I don't know if that was the semi-final I bit. I did final, don't but... remember that. I think maybe you dre- I think maybe you Have I just read that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, and it, it's probably would be fair to say that although we've been quite harsh on Polina Gagarina so far, and we will probably will continue to be so, Sergei Lazarev, although he's kind of cast in the role of Cartoon villain. He's a guy who's been very supportive of LGBT rights. You know, he's widely speculated to be gay himself. And 
So probably doesn't like Russia's homophobic laws any more than anyone else does. And and he's also one of the few Russian celebrities who actually criticised the annexation of Crimea. So is he necessarily the bad guy here? No. Hmm. No. Uh, well, that question does get a little more complicated. In subsequent episodes, yeah, as, but, we, yeah. as we move on, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, he certainly seems to be a guy with yeah, very liberal, tolerant attitudes. He may have been put across the face of Russia, but he certainly doesn't share that intolerance that a lot of people associate with the Russian state. Which kind of leaves me thinking, because we mentioned the Netflix Eurovision movie. Now, the star of that is, well, not the star, what are the, well, some people think he should be the star of the film, is a charismatic... Russian pop star who is strongly hinted at as gay, but can't say so because he's a Russian celebrity, and who you kind of think at the beginning is going to be the, the cartoon villain of the piece, but actually turns out to be quite a good guy. I wonder, did they take that off Sergei Lazarev? I think it's fair to assume so, yes. Mm, yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think even to- I think it was towards the end of the film, Spoilers, I should say. That I think where he was like, I think he was talking to, is it one of the, uh, not uh, one of the Icelandic duo, I can't remember her name, towards the end, and he was like saying that he couldn't Mm. really be himself or something, something Mm. along those lines back in his home country and that kind of thing. So, you know. Yeah. I think. Yeah. So he may have made a reappearance in the Netflix movie. Yeah. Albeit in fictional form. Mm. So, while all this was going on in Russia, that they brought out this big star, expensive video, very elaborate stage show. They're clearly gunning for the win. Now, let's turn to Ukraine. Some people who may just watch the show every year, they may not be aware that if you're a strong enough fan and you've got enough time on your hands, pretty much all the national selection shows are actually live streamed on the internet. So, people can watch all the national selections if they want to. It's a great time sink. And Ukraine's Eurovision selection show is called Vidbeer. Did you guys happen to watch it in 2016? No. <laughs> no, I don't remember. I don't yeah. remember watching it. I did watch it. Back then, unfortunately, this isn't something they tend to particularly do now, but they used to set up a YouTube feed which had an English translation commentary going on over it, so you could actually hear what they're saying. And... On the panel, Ruslana, Eurovision's winner of 2004 for Ukraine, was on the panel. Verka Saduchka was on the panel. So we won't remember him as the guy dressed in Baker foil, singing, I'm right, try, Tansen. Which, although it didn't win, I think a lot of people associate him with Ukraine and Eurovision. And I believe he's actually a bit of a Simon Cowell type figure in Ukraine as well. So he's not just a singer, he's also a bit of a music mogul. And he's got tight leather trousers as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I can tell you, I was in Kiev in 2017 for Eurovision and on the grand final, I got talking to a bunch of Ukrainian teenagers. And as I have to say, they did not give a shit about Ruslana or Jamala, you know, the artist that actually won Eurovision for it, but they loved Verka Sadushka. I think it's impossible not to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just Verka's just iconic, just all over iconic. Yeah. Uh, and I think Verka and and Mom, I think it was in 20, yes, in 2017, and those VTs uh, mm. where we see of Verka and her mom painting the 
friendship arch between Russia and Ukraine in the Pride flags. I don't know if you remember that, but oh, I um, do remember that. Yeah. Yes, and it was very, very interesting. Yes, very, very interesting. You know, painting it and sort of showing sort of more European alignment as well through that. I remember in Kiev, uh, they, when I went up to where the Friendship Arch was, the LGBT colours that had been sort of taped onto it, like little coloured tapes, but they'd only got halfway across. Uh, so that was because apparently the local far right had got involved and basically made them oh. stop. So it all just got left half finished. That, yeah, yeah, because they, 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 they did paint it in, in advance of the organisation, didn't they, of mm. uh, Russian Ukraine mm. and mm. Kiev. Yeah, so... Going back to Vidbeer 2016, now one thing I do recall is that as the acts were coming on stage, there was clearly an agenda at work. The, the panellists who were commenting on the shows, they were, they were taking a very nationalistic line, particularly Ruslana, who is very nationalistic. Less so Verkasadushka, but what they were talking about repeatedly was how what goes must represent Ukraine, which was their year of coming back after the chaos of 2014-2015. And they would be giving a particularly hard time to certain musicians if they'd done performances in Russia. So, you know, demanding to know, you know, oh, so you performed in Russia. What's your loyalty to Ukraine? Are you loyal to Ukraine? Would you be representing Ukraine? There was a lot of that going Mm. on. And it was a little clear which act they wanted the public to vote for, which was, of course, 1944 by Jamala. So, uh, Julia, how would you describe 1944? Oh, where to start? Um, <laughs> <laughs> 1944, how do we even start? How, do, how does one go about describing 1944? Jamala has attributed it to her great-grandmother, uh, and it's about the first, at least, uh, the, the I don't even know that much about uh, Russian-Ukrainian history, so I don't know if it's right to say the first, but it's about the annexation of Crimea in 1944. She, she has attributed it to her great-grandmother, and she sings in a mixture of English and Ukrainian, the way that she sings to us in, in English, she sings in second person singular, where she she describes this whole annexation uh, quite vividly. And when she says they, they come to your house, they kill your family, she's inviting us to experience the annexation through our own eyes. Just to clarify slightly, it- wasn't so much an annexation as such, because the Crimea was already part of the Soviet Union, but it was about the forcible transportation of Crimean Tatars out of Crimea. And I believe 100,000 of them died during that transportation. So it'd be fair to call it a genocide. Thank you. Thank you for correcting me. I appreciate that. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, uh, please bear in mind to anyone listening that I my native language is not English, so sometimes I will have to <laughs> have a little yeah. bit of, of help to okay. <laughs> properly explaining everything a little bit. So right. I appreciate that, Phil. Thank you. Okay. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's also important for me that we get it right and that I don't mm-hmm. say anything that doesn't yeah. accurately portray what actually happened. So thank you. Thank you for that. What I was saying was that she with her use of language, she invites us to literally experience it through their eyes. And there's a great sense of community in language 
So choosing to also sing it in Ukrainian invites us also further to, to be a part of this community. And again, as I was saying before, we have a great deal of us versus them when it comes to nationality, nationalism, and we are firmly guided to join them in the us part versus the them part. Or just another slight correction. It was the non-English parts of the song are actually in Crimean Tatar, not Ukrainian. Thank you. <laughs> it's hard to hear that now because although, yeah, it is about a particular moment in history, 1944, it's also a very thinly veiled reference to the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the opening line, when strangers are coming, they come to your house. In the past year, strangers did come. And uh, yeah, we've all seen you know, the horrific atrocities that came out of towns like Buka and Irpin and Hostomel and the absolute slaughter that took place in Mariupol. It's a difficult lesson, isn't it? Yeah, I think now it definitely takes on a completely new meaning as well with what's happening. And I think I think Jamal also performed, I think was a, an ITV benefit concert for Ukraine I think that was televised a few months ago um, and she performed there as well and it's just such an emotionally powerful song and I, I still remember Jamal performing it in 2016 and I was absolutely blown away by the emotion that was coming across through my mm. television screen at that time and even thinking about it now it's just making me a bit emotional and the meaning that it has especially now and you know it just yeah i've got no no other words really uh because it's just mm. such a powerful powerful song new julie you sorry yuli <laughs> it's fine either one works i think one of the best things uh that she did with that performance was there's um I, I don't know what this phenomenon is called. Uh, if either of you do please let me know but there is parts of the song where it sounds with the vocal technique that she's using, it sounds like she's crying over all of these lost lives. Mm. And there's there's nothing that binds a nation together like a shared memory of, of trauma, uh, of, of mm. sorrow, of grief. Mm. And that just made it an incredibly moving performance. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would go so far as to say the most powerful lyric in the song is the one that doesn't actually contain a single word and it's just that howl uh, mm -hmm. grief and intergenerational trauma and I wonder how much it spoke to not just people who whose ancestors have been affected by the transportation of the Crimean Tatars but also people affected by the Holodomor, the Holocaust, the Armenian genocide. As you say it's yeah that, that is a common memory that a lot of countries particularly in central and eastern europe have and i think if i remember at the time as well i think we had the refugee crisis in syria you know which is still going on and i think at the time i think it resonated a lot of people you know sort of as a way of connecting mm. with that as well so. absolutely we, we don't have to have the same home to understand the, the longing for home or the shared mm. loss yeah. of home yeah, and it is. Yeah, it is incredibly powerful, and I think, and I think it's just become more so in the light of recent events. And so she went to Stockholm, and Russia were there gunning for a win, and Jamala swooped in and took the win from them. <laughs> As I recall, I think 
Russia won the televote, Australia won the jury vote, and Ukraine basically slid through the middle and took the overall prize. Yeah. yeah. I did ask my Russian contacts, you know, what, what kind of response did that have in the media back in Russia when Sergei's crown was taken away from him, as they might have seen it? And the response was, Jamie, you may detect a certain echo in there. Oh, it's all just political. They won't vote for us because they hate us. <laughs> does that sound at all familiar? <laughs> it does, yes. It <laughs> very much does. And that's where we're going to pick up in the next episode because Jamala has, has won and in 2017, Eurovision will relocate to Kiev. But one last thing to do. I would like both of you, of the songs we've played, so we've played... TikTok by Maria Yeramchuk, A Million Voices by Polina Gagarina, You Are the Only One by Sergei Lazarev, and 1944 by Jamala. I want each of you to give one of those songs null point and one of them deuce point. So, Yulia, who would you give your null point to? A Million Voices. <laughs> it's not even a, a competition, really. It just doesn't ring true <laughs> it's a piece of propaganda in my opinion and uh yeah there's no doubt about it yeah and you jamie i think we're gonna be i've been saying the same thing i think <laughs> yes zero yeah voices. yeah i i do have to agree with you both on that if it, it was purely on the music alone i probably would have said tiktok but to go there Perform a peace anthem when your country's just invaded another country. And then a couple of years after that, you're in a campaign song for Putin. No, it's just offensive on so many levels. I did notice just recently Wee Wee Blogs, which is probably the biggest of all the Eurovision fan websites, they recently ran a reader's poll of people's favourite runners-up of the past 10 years, and they pointedly refused to include a million voices in the poll. So they made their decision, you know, if you're good with on. Putin, you're... Yeah, good yeah. Luck. yeah. Yeah, Good on you, right. Weeby Blogs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Weeby Blogs get some stick sometimes. And if I'm honest, I've sometimes given them some stick, but they were absolutely right there. <laughs> credit where credit is due. Yeah. Yeah. I think they've taken the view that if you're with Putin, you're not part of our community. Okay. Who are we giving the dues points to? Yulia? I mean, it can only be uh, 1944. There's no, yeah. there's no doubt about it. Yeah. Um, it, it. It transcends the contest itself. So mm. yeah. it, there's no doubt about it. And you, Jamie? And exactly the same again. Yes, yeah. Jamal was 1944. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think it's definitely one of my favourite winners. Just be, you know, as, as Judy says, it's just, you know, completely, it does transcend that called the contest. And yeah. it, re it resonates with a lot of people and touches, you know, really serious issues as well. Uh, yeah. And it's just so uh, powerful and emotional. It's just brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So I think we have a very strong consensus on both ends this time. So before we close the episode, uh, Jamie... Where can people find you on social media? Uh, at Shady Eurofreak. Yeah. And yourself, Yulia? On Twitter. Uh, I am my name on, on Twitter. <laughs> Yulia Hazaris. Julie Hazaris. Uh, have fun trying to spell that out. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you just spell it as Julie Hazaris. <laughs> I think I've yeah. accidentally called you Julie a few times during this episode. <laughs> it's fine. It's all the same. Okay. Uh, so join us in the next episode when Eurovision will move to Kiev. Eurovision Wars is presented by ESC Insight, hosted by Phil Dory, with guests Dr. Jamie Halliwell and Yulia Hesseris. 
Find out more at www.escinsight.com and support the site at patreon.com slash escinsight.